Well, good morning again. Today we're going to continue our study through the parables of Jesus. And uh, today we come to the parable of the lost sons. Uh, There's two sons that are lost in different ways. And um, when I was in Bible, when I was in seminary, I was an associate pastor at a church. And I began to preach more in big church. I was a youth minister before this, but I got to preach in front of the adults more often. And a pastor and professor sat down with me and told me, now, Jack, I need to warn you before you preach more in big church. I know your style, you know, you, the way you talk. You did not grow up in church. He said, but people that have grown up in church, they're a little bit accustomed to certain things. And there's three topics I want you to be really leery of and try to stay away from these topics. Here are the hot topics. Children, money, and politics. And I remember thinking, you know, the Bible has a lot to say (laughs) on those three topics. And if you take politics as justice and how you treat your neighbor, there is just a wide array of passages. And... um, and he was trying to warn me. He, he was trying to tell me, you know, when, when you talk about children, money, and politics, these are hot topics, hot, you know, buttons that you can easily make long-term enemies with, and uh, you just need to be careful. Well, today we're going to talk about children. This is a hot topic. This is something that's near and dear to our hearts. We're passionate about our children. We're passionate about those we love. Last week, we, we got into Luke 15, which is where we're going to be if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke 15. We got into Luke 15, and we got into this context where Jesus wanted to use parables to teach the people, all the people, about God being like a father and us being like children. But he began not with children and not with fathers. He began with stuff. And so I want to look at Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Luke 15, verse 1. This sets up the context for uh, the parables. He gives three, and we went through the first two last week. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the context is... There is a lost problem. There's people that are lost. That's the problem. We went over that last week. And the lostness has to do with these two groups of people that are mentioned in the text. You have the self-righteous. These are the Pharisees and scribes. They're lost and don't know it. These are the self-righteous that think they're good between them and God. They think they do good. They think they are good. They think they've earned their place. They think they deserve good. And then you have the sinners. These were lost and weren't worth it. Meaning when Jesus entered into this situation, the culture was these people were rebels. They were the kind of sinners that openly rejected God, walked away from God, and didn't deserve, didn't earn to be pursued by God or his people. They deserve judgment. They should be rejected. And that's the problem that Jesus enters into and speaks to, and he gives two parables about sheep and coins to, to open the idea that, hey, 
there is a lost problem and God is out seeking, wanting to find the lost. But the third parable he gets is different than the first two. The, the third parable he gives, he brings it home further into a relationship with parents and their children. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a child walk away from you and the family or the faith? Just walk away. Have you ever had a grandchild that, despite all the good upbringing, just decided to walk away, rebel, reject, I don't want this? Have you ever had a loved one, a friend? I I remember my friend Alex. Have you ever had someone that you discipled, you poured into, you cared about? And because of some situation outside of your control, they decided, I'm going to turn away from the faith and I'm going to walk as far away from God and church as I possibly can. Have you ever experienced that? God has. God has experienced people that ought to belong to him and be with him, walk away from him. And so this third parable, Jesus gives insight and gives us lessons about what a godly father does with wayward children, ones that you love dearly. What do you do when they walk away? What do you do when they don't want anything to do with you? How do you treat them? How do you deal with them? What's your role? Well, Jesus gives us that insight when he brings it home, no pun, with children that have walked away and children that despise him and doesn't want anything to do with his leadership. So Luke 15, 1 through 2, that's the context. You have the self-righteous and sinners. And I want you to keep this in mind because the self-righteous and sinners are also in this third parable. If you, as you study the third parable he gives, these are the two sons. You have the self-righteous son, and you have the sinner rebel son. And so, what if your children were tax collectors or sinners? What if your children were the Pharisees or Sadducees? What if these were your disciples? What if these were your children? What if this was someone you loved? What do we do? Well, we can learn from this third parable. So, we're going to get into the third parable. It starts in verse 11, and this is the lesson about restoring the rebel. What do you do with the one who rebels? Luke 15, verse 11. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. He divided the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Now, back in Jesus' day, uh, this is a common scenario. You have a father, and a father is kind of like the king of the land in this day. It's very patriarchal. It's just part of the culture. The father owns the property. The father hires the servants. Everything belongs to the father. He has the legal rights uh, to what belongs to that family unit. The father is like the head of the family. And so when a father dies... He distributes his stuff, kind of like today when you have a a will. After you pass away, you have a will. Who gets what? The father, in this culture, gives away uh, his stuff to his sons. Now, if you have four sons, let's just imagine if you have four sons, 
your property would be divided in five parts. You add an extra part. You give two parts to your firstborn son, and then you give one part to each other son. In this story, a father only has two sons, so the math is super easy. He has two sons, so he would divide his stuff into three parts. He'd give two parts to his older son, his eldest, and then he would give one part to his younger son, the youngest one. Well, this younger son is a rebel. He comes to his father and he tells him, I want what's coming to me. I want my share of the estate. Now, if you know much about this culture, this is like him saying, if when you die, you're going to give me a third of your stuff. I want it now before you die. And people have made the remarks on this, on this story that this was like the younger son telling his dad, you know what? I would rather you be dead. I would rather you die. I, I just want my stuff. Now, that's certainly true in a context, but this story is not meant to seem that extreme. The idea is this younger son is like an immature person, an immature man that doesn't understand delayed gratification. He wants his stuff now. Have you ever had a child of yours say, I want this right now. And you say, you can't get it now, you're going to get it later. And they don't understand that. And they're like, I want it right now. Can I have it right this very second? This is when I want it. Well, this picture is meant to be this son, not necessarily saying, I hope you're dead. That's not what he says. Now, that's what it turns into. But he's immature. He's blind. All he knows is, I want my life the way I want it, and I want it now. I want to do things my way. And we've all been tempted with this. Every single person in this room at different points, multiple points in your life, you've said, I want it my way and I want it now. Well, that's this younger son. So he tells the dad, I want my stuff. That's the first shocking point. This is very disrespectful in this culture, very rude. This is very, uh, it's dishonoring. And honor was, a, was an important value in this culture. And so when Jesus is giving this story, the Jews that are the main audience in the story that are listening to this go, it's almost like you can hear them gasp for air. That younger son, what a rebel. It's horrible. It's shocking. He shouldn't treat his dad this way. But that's not near as shocking as the next part, what the dad does. So the father distributed the assets to them. The most shocking part of this is the dad who loves his children divides up his assets. Now, that word distributed means like to divide, to cut. The word assets, it's the word bios. You know like our term biology, you know the study of life, the living things. Bios, it means life. We translate it belongings, assets, all that. What this means is this guy divides his life to give it to his child. Now, let me ask you this question. If you have ever experienced someone you love rebel and turn away from God and you have to let them, doesn't it feel like a piece of you is being torn away as you let them leave? It's like someone is tearing part of you apart. And that's this, that's this context. He divides up his life and gives to him. 
And not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. He leaves. Now, this is important because you have to think, not in 21st century, how was the father able to divide up his stuff and give it to his son? That means the dad had to go and sell his property. He had to sell at least a third of everything he owned in order to give it to the son. You know, the son doesn't have a shovel and he's digging up part of his dad's land and taking it with him. That's not how it worked. And there were no banks or credit cards and things like that. The dad had to go through labor and work. He had to endure loss. He had to sell at a bad price if it took it. He went and sold what he had in order to give a third of his stuff to his son for his son to leave. And the son takes it and goes. Now, we know this is about lost children. The lostness is the problem. But think about the lesson that God is teaching us through this dad. It's shocking that this older man, this, this Jewish man, would sell his stuff and give it to his younger son. And you know what God is teaching us? When your rebel children insist on leaving, let them leave. When, when, and it should be on the screen somewhere. When your children, when your rebel children insist on leaving, you have to let them leave. Part of what we learn from this parable is how God is like a father and everything Jesus is teaching through this dad. He's meaning as a parable to teach them this is how God loves his sons. And guess what? God has self-righteous religious children that he loves and he has rebellious sinners that he loves and God can relate to you when you have one of the two. Now, they're two somewhat extremes, but I'm not going to do it. If I were to ask you to raise your hands, how many of you have had dear loved ones, children, grandchildren, that were either self-righteous, lost and didn't know it, or rebellious sinners and were lost and didn't care? How many of you would be able to raise your hands? Well, God knows. And that's what he's teaching through this father. It's shocking because God the Father is saying, this is how I am in this story. Read the story. Listen to the parable. Meditate on it. The Father is meant to represent God the Father. And the children are meant to represent us. And so when rebellious children insist on leaving, you let them leave. If you have a rebellious child or grandchild, it may feel like part of you is being ripped away, but you have to let them leave. Now, there are two mistakes that parents make, two extremes of ex mistakes that parents make in the scriptures when it comes to our children. When it comes to how we deal with our children, there's two extremes. The first extreme and mistake is raising the bar too high. That's the first mistake. God does not desire for us to raise the bar, the standard, too high. What do I mean by that? We don't have a standard? Of course we have a standard. Do we not have a bar? Of course we have a bar. But don't raise it too high. Listen to how Jesus talked about him being like a father and shepherd to us. And uh, we'll get into a couple of verses. But let the verses sink into how God treats us when we are sinners, lost, rebellious, wanting to live life our own way, wanting to do things our own way, and maybe not even realizing, because this son obviously didn't realize it what, it, what we're doing with our lives. How does he treat us? Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says to a bunch of sinners and a big crowd, 
Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. In this passage, Jesus shares that if you are weary, weary of what? Well, you could look at this story and find out what this younger son became weary of. If you are weary and lowly, if you realize my rebellion, my walking away from God, the way that I've disobeyed God, if you're tired of that, if you will humble yourself and come to God, come to him because his yoke is not heavy. His burden's not heavy or difficult. What does he mean by that? If you don't know what a yoke is, just imagine a big wooden handcuff for your neck that connects two necks. Imagine this, you know, if you've ever seen those pictures that like, I don't know, Branson, where you have like the guy where your head sticks in the hole and then your arms stick in the hole and they keep you captive. Okay, a yoke is very much like that, but it's just got the hole for your, your, actually, sometimes it's not even a hole, it's two bars with chains. But what they do is they take a beast of burden, like a bull or a strong uh, animal, they connect it to the, the, either the farming equipment or a chariot or something. And then they have another one that's smaller and less strong than the big one, and they attach the yoke to that smaller one so that the smaller one will learn from the big one. Because as the big one's you know, coming along and doing his job like he's been doing for years, the smaller one learns, oh, this is how we do it. This is how we pull the weight. This is how we take the burden. So you train the younger ones with that. Well, they know, every good farmer in this day knows, if you have too big of a contrast where this bull is this big and this other one is this small, this small one's going to get run over. It's going to get torn apart. It's going to be destroyed. You, have to have, you, have, you can't have a big gap or else you won't teach the younger ones. You have to let them grow up into it. And so when Jesus is giving this illustration, he's saying, listen, my yoke is not going to tear you apart. My, my burden is not too heavy for you. If you come to me, if you listen to me, if you let me be your Lord, if you let me be your authority, my commands are not going to break you. You can learn from me. It, I will be able to carry most of the weight and I will help you. That's why John reminds us and his commands are not burdensome. If you follow the Lord, if you live under his his roof, if you follow his instruction, if you don't just want to take your stuff and leave and live your own life, if you trust him, it will not be burdensome for you, is what he's saying. And so God doesn't want us to set the bar too high because he does not set the bar too high. And you have to think of what the bar is. What is the standard? What is the standard that Jesus set? Perfection. Now, how can God say it's not too hard? It's because he's the one that helps you with it. He works with you. It's called sanctification. He understands where you are, and he walks you through it slowly. Just like two beasts of burden with a yoke on them, he will help you carry the weight. He goes slowly with you. He doesn't expect you to be at level 50 when you start at level 1. He walks with you through it. Another example of this with fathers in particular is Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Two words in here, really important in here, are discouraged and exasperate. Of course, we don't use exasperate very often. Do you know what exasperate means? Overwhelm is a good synonym. Yeah, the idea is 
When you have your children, don't exasperate them. Don't overwhelm them. Don't be so hard on them. Don't set the bar so high. Don't be so difficult with them that they just want to give up and they become angry. They become angry at you because they feel like, I can't do it. I cannot meet your expectation. I cannot, I cannot do that. I can't reach that high. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Be patient with them. Be gentle. God is gentle with you. If you set it too hard, if your expectations are unrealistic, what's going to happen to the young person? They're going to feel like, I'll never make it. And they'll want to give up. Every man in this room knows what it's like to give up and to want to give up. And you know what that's like when you just want to throw your hands up. I can't win anyway. Why even argue? I can't win. Why try? Why play a game you can't win? We know what it's like to feel exasperated. And God says, fathers, don't do that with your children. You're going to be tempted to. You're going to think you're the dad, you're the boss, you're the king. They better live up to your expectations. You're going to want them to, but don't treat them like that. And God reminds us, I don't treat you like that. I love Romans chapter 2. I think it's verse 4. I should have prepared for this. This is just one of my verses in my mind. It said, Paul is writing to the Jews, and he's telling them about how they're treating the Gentiles. And the Jews are treating the Gentiles like, you better follow the law, you need to do the law. And he's like, "Uh, that's not how it works. And he reminds them in in Romans chapter 2, and he says, don't you know that it's God's kindness toward you that leads you to repentance? And Paul, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit carrying Paul along to write this is saying, it's God's kindness that leads you toward repentance. Don't you know that God doesn't set the bar so high that you can't meet it? Don't you know that the bar is perfection and if God were to let you try to get there, you'd never get there in a million years? Don't treat your children that way. Be gentle and kind to them. Be patient. Be understanding. Don't exasperate them. So one mistake that parents make that this man is not making is setting the bar so high that they can't make it. That's not present in the story, but that is a mistake that parents are known to make, and especially in Scripture. The second mistake that parents make, and this is the other extreme, is by turning a blind eye. Parents turn a blind eye. When it comes to their children that are rebelling against God, they just dig, they, they stick their head in the sand, and they, they, it's like they don't believe it's happening. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse, verses 5 through 8, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In the end, your children, your grandchildren, your disciples, people you're trying to teach and train in the Lord, in the end, the decision is theirs. They have to make the decision. Their faith has to be their own. They have to decide if they're going to follow God or not. And you're going to have to 
let them. If they insist on leaving, one thing we learn from this father is you've got to let them go. Now, it doesn't mean when they're 10, you decide, oh, you don't want to follow my rules? Okay, you do whatever you want. That's not the idea. This is a young man ready to be an adult. But when, when they insist on leaving, you have to let them go. Because that's what the father does in the story. But that's not the end of the story. In verse 14, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So as Jesus is telling this story, you could just feel the squirming of the Jews in the story. This younger son, this rebel, this sinner, this tax collector, this prostitute, whatever you want to call him, this one that's rebelling against the father, rebelling against what's right and what's good, he goes off to a distant country. This is a non-Jewish place. They don't have the same law. They don't have the same rules. They don't have the same culture, expectation. He goes out to what we would call, he goes out into the, quote, world. He goes out into the world, not under the parents that want to train him with, into what's right. He goes and he squanders everything he has. He loses it because every idol is vain and empty. And no matter how much you have, if it's not from God, you'll always want more. It will always leave you empty. The father knows this and he still lets him leave. That's important. We know this when we're wise, when we trust the scriptures. We know that living according to the world and not according to God's commands, we know it'll leave us dry and empty, and yet we're still tempted every single day to give in, to give in to our temptations. Well, this, this young son, he gives in, he squanders everything he has, and then there's a famine in the land. Not a coincidence. He loses everything. And because he lost everything, he has to go work. He realizes he's not in his home anymore. He's not under the blessing and protection of his father. So he goes and he works for one man who has pigs. Now, a Jew is not, meant, is not supposed to mess with pigs. Right? I love pork, by the way. This is Old Testament, so just keep that in mind. This is their culture from the Old Testament. You, and you could eat stuff now. Paul made that clear. Peter was eating it too in Galatians. Anyway, that we can eat it. But he wasn't allowed to back then, and that's the culture of the day. So Jesus is giving this, and the Jews know you're not allowed to touch pigs. That makes you unclean. That makes you unworthy to go to church. It's like when someone tells you, oh, I can't go to church. Have you ever heard the phrase, man, I'll burst into a ball of flames if I walk inside that church? I've had people tell me that, meaning it. Like, they probably didn't think they were going to really catch on fire, but they meant it like, I don't belong here. That's the way that this guy would be treated. He knows he can't go back to the father, so he works for a man, and he has to deal with pigs. And he's so hungry that he looks at the slop, the, the scraps that the pigs are eating. He's so hungry, he wants to eat it. But the foreman, the master, the guy he's working for, all those people are like, you better not eat what's from the pigs because we need these pigs to live. We need these pigs to live so we can fatten up and sell them and we need money from them. You better not steal from them. I ain't feeding you, I'm feeding them. He couldn't even eat the pig slops. And so this guy is hungry, he's starving, he realizes he's at the end of his ropes. And then verse 17, then he comes to his senses. When he came to his senses, he said, hmm, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. By the way, verse 17 should be the prayer 
if you have someone in your life that's a rebel, that's walking away from God, what you're praying for is, God, would you help them come to their senses? Would you help them realize what they're missing and what they're doing? Would you open the eyes and ears of their heart that they would see? Well, the young son gets this opportunity, but it's how he gets the opportunity that's really important. He hatches a plan, verse 18. I know what I'll do. I'll get up. I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Now, what do we learn from this father and from this story in this instance? The idea when it comes to rebels, when things get tough, let them hit bottom. That's the lesson. When you have a rebellious child, grandchild, loved one, someone you're discipling, when things get tough, let them hit bottom. It was only after he hit bottom that verse 17 happened that he came to his senses. Uh, I love how Larry Osborne puts it. He says, if we soften the blows, we'll lengthen the rebellion. If you soften the blows, you'll lengthen the rebellion. Uh, I was a part of an addiction recovery ministry uh, back when I was in Michigan. And Detroit, Michigan is, is quite rampant, drug addiction. I remember, I think I did like 17 or 18 funerals in one year uh, from people ages 17 and up that were dying for addiction problems, overdosing, and, and uh, their hearts going out and their livers going out and all that kind of stuff. And I remember being a part of that ministry, and it's tough. It's tough dealing with addicts. It's really difficult. But do you know half of the job was working with them? Do you know what the other half was? Dealing with their family, their loved ones. There was always some mom or some sister that would continue to, or grandparent, that would continue to give them money, let them sleep on their couch, do a number of things. And part of the job was stressful because we, we had to try to convince these loved ones, stop enabling your son, Stop enabling your brother. Stop enabling your sister. Stop enabling your wife. Stop enabling you, you name it. They are addicts. They are in trouble. Now listen, we'll help them get a driver's license. That's one of the hardest things to do. We'll help them get a driver's license. We'll help them get a job. We will work with them. They'll, we'll keep coming this. We'll have this addiction recovery every week. We will talk with them. But listen, you cannot enable them. You're what we call a codependent. And I know you love them, and I know you want to serve them, and I know you just hate it watching them live at the bottom, but you have to do it. You have to let them go, and you got to let them eat the fruit of their labor. And I'm not saying this to be cold-hearted, and I'll tell you, they were good people. They were so hard to convince. Most of them were women. They were wives and moms and uh, grandmothers and, and sisters, and it's like, listen, You've got to stop giving them money. You've got to stop helping them. They will never get help until they hit rock bottom and realize they have to do it. And you are only enabling them and supporting them. Their bad habits are never going to end. And I'm telling you, people would look at me like I was the, the, the antichrist. Like, how, how could you be so car? I was like, listen, I grew up around addicts. I'm telling you right now, you do the research. Be a part of addiction recovery. It's hard to believe. Why? Because you love them. You love them so dearly, you don't want them to go without food. And listen, I know this is tough, but it's only tough for people that have never actually done anything about it. If a man doesn't work, 
he shouldn't eat. If a man's able to work, he should work. And if he doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. You know where I get that quote? The New Testament. Paul said that. Was Paul not a gracious guy? Of course he was. There are so many verses in the Bible that speak to this. You have to let the rebels hit rock bottom or else they will never quit. They need those blows. They need it. And listen, some of them die. I did a lot of funerals. I remember one guy in particular. I still cry about it today. I thought he was a good guy. I felt like he was stronger than me in many ways. And I pleaded with him. And he wouldn't let it go. I remember one time he was talking with me and one of the directors for the addiction recovery. And he's like, I'm more embarrassed telling you that I was selling it than actually doing it. And I remember thinking, how could you be more embarrassed for selling it than doing it? I was like, you got to stop selling it, number one. But, but don't do it either. Weeks went by, we didn't see him. He overdosed, died. There, in Detroit, they called it blue drop. It was, it was basically if guys would take meth or hair, heroin, but not heroin, fentanyl and other things, they would turn blue and they would drop. And the EMTs, they had to have this particular drug, and if they didn't have it or they didn't administer to it, they died right there on the spot. And he, he died. And I remember thinking, this man had more... And I know this sounds crazy to you, but you'd have to know him. I got to know him. He had more strength in him than a lot of men I've met. And he succumbed to this. And it broke my heart. Some rebels will die. And they will never return. You still have to let them go. You cannot fix and save someone that does not want to be fixed and saved. You can't do it. You've got to let them go. And what this father does and what God teaches us through this father is when they insist on leaving, let them leave. And if, when things get tough, let them go. Don't soften the blows. Let them hit rock bottom. They have to get there. That's why verse 17 happened. He came to his senses. Why? Because he had nowhere else to go. He knew that this was the very end. Now, the plan he hatches is horrible. <laughs> He has this plan. I know what I'll do. It's a two-part plan, pretty simple, but definitely not in line with God. Number one, I'll go home. I'll go back. I'll go home because obviously the blessings and the, the provisions of my father are better than what I've got going on. He does wake up. This stinks. This is dark. This is lonely. I don't want to stay here. Sometimes you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Sometimes you need those blows to realize it. He does realize it. He says, I'll go home. Step number two he says, I'll earn my place. This is where he messes up. He believes like any human would believe. I've got to earn my place back with God or with the Father. I know what I'll do. I'm not worthy to be your son. I can't be called your son. I don't deserve it. I've wasted the inheritance. I have no right to be your son. But if I come in as a hired servant, I'll earn my way back. I'll buy my place back. I will earn and buy my way back. You know what's interesting about the story? The younger son's solution is to become like the older son. Both of them were lost. Both of them are not right in the story. And, and that becomes clear at the end. And the younger son thought, if I just clean up my life, if I do all the right things, I can't be a son, I can't do that, but I will earn my way back with the father and I will make myself deserving of at least being there and having a place there, which is just self-righteousness. 
He wants to pay the father back. So, verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The father sees the younger son from a long way off. What does he do? What would you do? I have a great relationship with my dad today. I love him. He loves the Lord. He actually works at a church now. It's kind of funny. He's a retired Marine. But when I was born, he, he named me Jack Daniel after a whiskey. And he, we did not go to church. And he has not always been what he is today. And, uh, and I honor him and I love him and I'm so grateful for him. He would, he would give anything for me. I know that. It's true. When I was younger, though, he didn't know how to express that and he wasn't at a healthy place in his life. And uh, when I was a teenager, I remember he came to pick up my brother and me to go shopping for school clothes because my mom didn't have money and he was our only source of means and we, were, we became poor after my parents divorced and I lived in different places anyway. I'm sitting on the front porch. I wasn't sitting on the por front porch. He comes to the house and I was in the bathroom and it was taking me a while to get ready and um, it reminded him of my mom. My mom is late for everything. Like, if we have a family event, we literally tell my mom it's two, it starts two hours earlier than when it starts. That's not a joke. We tell her it's two hours. And she knows this. We still do it. Now we try three. Like, we just go as far back as we need to. My mom's late for everything. Well, my mom and dad were in the middle of, of a horrible divorce and separation. And I reminded my dad of my mom. And so he takes my brother and they leave and they go shopping. And I got out of the bathroom, I get out of the shower and stuff, and I find out that he's gone, and I go sit on the porch because there was a part of me that thought, maybe he's going to come back. And my dad never comes back. Hours go by, he comes back with my younger brother. My younger brother has bags of stuff. My younger brother goes in the house. He stays in the truck. I don't remember every word he told me, but I remember feeling as rejected as I've ever felt. And I went back and I sat on the porch for the rest of the evening. I do remember having this thought. There is no one in my life that won't leave me. My mom has left me. My family's abused me. Now my dad has left me. There's not a single human on earth that's gonna treat me better than my own, my own family. And they've left me. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I even realized what was going on. The, the trauma, you can call it, the heartache, part of what drove me to my own addictions, my own temptations. I was trying to fill that void. I didn't understand that I, I was missing a dad. I was missing what it felt like to be received. But I remember thinking most of my life, most of my years until later in life, if, it, if, if God were a dad like ours, if he, if he were a father, if he was just an average human father, and that younger son started strolling up to the house, what do you think that dad would do? Just a normal guy, just your average run-of-the-day human being, just a secular humanist, whatever you want to call it. He'd be sitting there with his arms crossed, tapping his foot. Maybe he'd go inside, make the son feel the rejection. Before you step foot in this house, there's going to be some rules. 
Why? Because of fear and anger. I don't want you to do this to me again, and I feel hurt that you did it in the first place. That's how human beings act. Fear and anger is part of our nature. And that's what most dads do, fear and anger. And he would have said, you're not stepping foot in here until you, you're going to earn it, you're going to do whatever. But that's not, how the, that's not how God works. When Jesus tells this story, the dads in the audience are scratching their heads saying, dude, I hope that's not my child, but there ain't no way I'm letting him step foot back in here to ruin me again. What kind of father runs out to the son, grabs him, and of all things, kisses him. How many dads kiss their sons today? I didn't grow up with a dad that gave me a kiss, so when I was, just years ago, it was after I came here, uh, I decided I need to give my kids a kiss. I want to kiss my kids. I'm going to give them a kiss. I was reading in the New Testament. There's actually a verse that says, give one another a holy kiss. Is a command, second person imperative. This is a command for the church. And I thought, can't preach that. These are Mennonites. Ain't no way I'm getting away with this. <laughs> so, but I took it, I applied it to my own life. I knew it was important. So I'm like, I need to kiss my kids. I want to show them affection. I want to show them affection. So I remember with my, my son, I say, I want to give you a kiss. And it was as weird as you could think it was. <laughs> I like... You know, and then, like, I gave him a kiss on the forehead, and he was kind of like, okay, and I was kind of like, okay. I remember even thinking where my feet were, because I didn't want to step on his feet. It was so awkward. I just, I just went through the whole, I just knew I need to do this, but it was weird. And uh, maybe it was weird the second or third time, I don't know. But I can tell you now, when I give my kids a hug, the younger ones, they... They lift their head up, and they won't let me stop hugging them until I kiss their forehead. Now, the older ones, I don't know what happens. <laughs> it got weird again. Not me. I love it. I think it's great. I love them so dearly. This Jewish man runs out to his son. Now, if you've heard the stories, we dramatize it a little bit. You know, Jewish men don't run. Sometimes they run. Jewish men don't run. They do sometimes. But in this scenario, for a Jewish man to run out to his rebel son, that's the point. It's not that he's running, it's who he's running to and why he's running. That's the point. It's like he doesn't have a care in the world. I don't care who sees me. I don't care who knows. I love my son. If there's a rebel in here, I want you to know, the second that you take one step toward the God of the Bible, the one and true God, it's like he takes universal strides toward you. So when your rebel child returns, comes back, run to greet them. You want to know how to deal with a rebel child? When they turn back to you, Run to greet them. Give them a kiss. Hug them. Love them. This father does something no father in his right mind would do in that day. And I would bet no father in this culture would do today. And embraces them.
When they run, when they come back, run to greet them. God expresses some of this in James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then James, this older man, this pastor in Jerusalem, a bunch of Jewish converts, very, very righteous, groomed, formal men. And, and he's old, and that's the only way you could get, uh, get away with this. He tells them, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If you humble yourself and turn to God, he draws near to you. But you'll never be humble if you think you're righteous. And I don't mean if you're righteous in Christ. If you're a believer, you are righteous in Christ. That's your standing. Of course, you have Jesus' righteousness. His robe is all over you. But remember, the proud are opposed by God. Humble yourself and the second you turn toward him, he will draw near toward you. In Luke 15, verse 21, the son tells him this plan. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But that's only half of the story. The rest of the half of the story we'll have to do another time. There's a lot we can learn about how we deal with rebels and we can learn from this father. So let's pray and let's remember this week how God treats us, how he looks at us when we turn to him and what his desire for us is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a good, patient, kind father. Not like me. Not like us. We echo the words of the prophet Isaiah. Who is like you? There is no one. We're made in your image, but we are a far cry from Jesus. And so we pray, would you sanctify us? Would you mold our hearts? Would you change us from the inside out? Would you give us the right attitude and perspective toward our sin, our self-righteousness? Giving in to temptation, we know it's not worth it. You are, more, you are worth more than anything the world has to offer us. And we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for how you treat the rebels, rebels of which some of us were against you, walking away from you, far from you, and you are the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost. And so we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Father. Would you make us more like you? I pray that you would make Grace Community Church true to its name that grace would be not just a value or a label, but a way in which we live, a way in which we treat one another according to your word. Thank you for drawing near to us when we draw near to you. Would you be with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.